So it's hymn number 82. It's a familiar hymn. And we've chosen. It's a Martin Luther hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which you know well. And I know that we've sort of gotten in the habit the last few weeks of speeding things up and just reading the first and singing the first and last. We're going to sing all four today. <laughs> so, and the reason I've chosen this hymn, the reason I've chosen this hymn is because there's a lot of echoes uh, from uh, Ephesians 6 in here. Um, Ephesians 6 talks about putting on the full armor of God. It's a very familiar passage to many of you. And I just let's just read the poetry of this. I mean, it's so easy when you're singing a song, particularly a familiar song, just to forget what the words are. Uh, but I hope if I remember, I'm not sure that I will, but... I'd like to come back to this during the lesson a couple times. So this is on page 82, Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I was going to read it to you in German, but I didn't really sh wasn't sure that you'd understand it. This is a translation that Martin Luther didn't write it in English, but I think it's a pretty good translation. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, our earth is not, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing, losing, were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, doth ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Footnote, Lord Sabaoth has nothing to do with Sabbath. It means, it's a, it's a phrase used in the Old Testament, it's from the Hebrew, it means Lord of hosts, like the Lord of hosts of the angel armies, okay? So, no charge for that. <laughs> Verse 3, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world, word, sorry, one little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So, I hope you'll hear some echoes of that in the lesson. Let's sing that like we know what we're singing today. Thank you. 
Thank you all. Thank you, Kathy. When I was a younger man, I used to think that wearing glasses down on your nose was a sign of wisdom. <laughs> now I know the truth. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for all your good gifts, your son, your church, your servants. This day, this class, this church, but especially on this day, we thank you for our beloved teacher, Dr. Phil, Philip Kennison. Phil is a teacher. It is the core of his being. He enjoys it as any should when they employ a God-given gift. He is awed by the responsibility, understanding that words matter. But he does it willingly, lovingly, and with commitment. Every moment of transition has two sides, an ending and a beginning. Sometimes, depending on one's perspective, we might see one side as being better than the other. Perhaps that's why we frequently struggle with any transition, and maybe particularly this one. We turn into this time of transition with requests. We ask you to bless and direct Phil as he moves into this next chapter of his life. You've directed him and used him here in many ways and in many lives. We ask you to bless and direct the Virgil Anderson class as we move into the next chapter of our lives together. Use us, fill us, we pray. We ask that in your grace and through your commitment to community that you would keep us all bound to one another and that Phil will always understand this class has a warm place in our collective hearts for him. May the significant spiritual memories of our lives together reinforce us as we seek to be living, vital witnesses to the grace of God active in and through each of us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. Amen. try to save my thanks till next week at the brunch because if I start to do it now I won't be able to teach <laughs> can be hard enough as it is so we're finishing up the book of Ephesians today so much to say Got our picture up here one last time, just to remind us that <coughs> everything that Paul tries to say, pretty good in the second half of the book, of chapters four through six, where it feels like everything's in a lot 
more of the imperative case um, directions um, that it's all in light of what Paul has laid out in the first three chapters this astonishing gospel uh, what he calls uh, the mystery of the gospel right that that God has done so much that God has done so much God, God has uh, has and is gathering all things together in Christ God has raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of the Father and in some way because we are in Christ, Paul says, that we too find ourselves in the heavenlies at the right hand of God. And that out of Jew and Gentile, God has created one new humanity. And that this is astonishing. This is astonishing. There's one new humanity. And that the rest of the book is really about what does it mean for us to live into what God has made us? What does it mean for us to live into this one humanity that God has made us? As we said, Paul nowhere in Ephesians or anywhere else says, wake up tomorrow morning, come Monday, and make yourselves into one new humanity. That's a gift that's been accomplished. Granted, we don't live that way. Um, it's not because God hasn't done what God did. God has done it in Christ. And Paul's trying to convince anyone who will hear, and this is a circular letter, anyone who will hear what God has actually accomplished in Christ and then urges us, begs us to live into that reality, that truth. And it's easy to hear all that and you might think, well, because God has accomplished all that, then maybe there's no more struggle. Um, sounds like it's all done. We can just sit back and relax. And we've caught hints um, throughout that that's not so. But you see it most clearly here in chapter 6, um, beginning at verse 10. Uh, this famous passage about putting on the armor of God where Paul is really clear that there's still work to be done. There's still the, that there's, there's, there's this uh, kind of what feels like a paradox, but once you start thinking about it, it's not entirely a paradox. It's just something that we don't often think about. Um, and that is that in the cross, and resurrection and then the life of Jesus and in his exaltation that you know Jesus comes announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand the kingdom of God is here and in Jesus coming and in his death and resurrection and exaltation the kingdom is present it's inaugurated if you will but it's not yet fully here the kingdom is here, but it's not fully here. You know, our sort of logical brains want to say, well, either it's here or it's not. Like, which is it? Um, like, you're in the room here. Well, am I here or am I not? Um, but it's not, I mean, we, we know what inauguration is, right? Um, it's, it's the beginning of something, right? When we inaugurate a new present every four or eight years, I mean, the, the so-called reign, if you will, of that president has begun. Um, but it's not, it's not fully there on day one, right? And this is, this is what 
Scripture teaches that in Jesus' coming, the kingdom has actually come. And there are places where you can see it. It's not an idea. It's a reality. Right? Um, where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, there's a sense in which the kingdom is breaking in. That's why Jesus could say, you know, if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's right here. You can see it. Why? Because God's desire is that all creation move towards shalom, towards wholeness, towards completeness. And so whenever Jesus healed people, it was a sign that the kingdom was breaking in because people were moving towards wholeness. But that wholeness is not yet fully here. The kingdom has not been consummated fully. And so, as Luther is clear in the hymn, I mean, the spiritual forces of darkness are still at work. One biblical scholar uh, decades ago was trying to help people understand this. And in his day, the, mo the most ready analogy that still is used um, was that is the distinction between uh, D-Day and V-E-Day, right? If you recall World War II, right? Uh, D-Day was the decisive battle that was won. And even at that moment, people knew that the tide had changed. But it was some 332 days later, almost a year later, when the war formally came to an end. And the truth of the matter was, some of the fiercest fighting was in those days. Some of the fiercest fighting was in those days when the panic set in. People realized they were going to lose, but they were going to try not to lose, right? And so the spiritual forces of darkness know that their days are numbered. Their days are numbered. That doesn't mean they're giving up. Jesus is pretty clear. Things will get worse before they get better. And so, so Paul says, put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand in this day. Now, a couple things about this. Um, first, when he says the full armor of God, he means that in a couple senses. It's an it's a armor that's given us by God, and so it's from God. But he's also counting on his hearers um, to know that he's leaning heavily on some passages from Isaiah here, where this armor was the armor that God wore. Okay, so it was God's armor in that sense. Um, just to give you, if you go back, if you can find Isaiah, it's that big prophetic book in the Old Testament. There's a couple places that he's drawing from. First of all, in chapter 11, uh, Isaiah's offering what certainly came to be known as a messianic passage about what, what the Messiah is going to do, uh, what uh, the Messiah will be like when he comes and lists a lot of the virtues that the, that the Messiah will have at the beginning of chapter 11. And then at verse 5, Isaiah writes, Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. And so Messiah is going to have this belt, this belt of righteousness, this belt of faithfulness. And here's a little technical point, but you're a sharp butt so you can follow me. Uh, 
when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, which is what most people had access to in Paul's area, the word faithfulness there was translated as truth in the Greek version. So it was the belt of truth, which is what Paul will talk about. But then in chapter 59, Isaiah has this prophecy about the fact that there's no one who's going to come, uh, at least the, the people who were in captivity, who were in exile, felt that there was no one who could redeem Israel, who would uh, release them from their enemies. And so it says that God puts on the armor God's self. And so it says, this is at verse uh, 15 and following, 16, he saw, he, the Lord, Yahweh, saw that there was no one and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm brought him victory and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And here's an interesting part. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in fury as a mantle. When we get to see what Paul talks about, that, that part's left out um, because Paul's pretty clear in his writing that vengeance belongs to God. Uh, God doesn't call us to put on, uh, does, not call, does not call us to put on garments of vengeance and wrap ourselves in fury. Which brings us to one other point before we start reading this passage. Um, lots of Christians are some, not all, but some Christians are um, rightly nervous about uh, the sort of militaristic images and metaphors. Uh, some of you will remember uh, a couple of decades ago there were questions about whether Christians should sing onward Christian soldiers. Um, and you might say, well, why? Um, well, because there are parts of our history where that are not the best parts of our history, where we were quite literally onward Christian soldiers, and, and we slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people. So um, some people thought it's a little bit tone deaf to just sing that without being aware of that. They may be wrong, but I'm just saying that's, that's what the discussion was about, right? Uh, similar thing here, um, when you start calling Christians to put on armor, some people get nervous. Uh, several things to keep in mind that I think temper that worry a little bit, if we're clear about what's being called. One is, remember that Paul's writing uh, to a, a very tiny minority group. Um, they are actually under occupation by people with real armor, right? Um, he's also um, not only writing to minority group, but he's, al he's also, um, as we'll see with the armor, I mean, w what we're actually armed with is not your, your typical set of armor, right? Um, and so it is the armor with which we're to do battle, but that's part of the way in which he's transforming, uh, transforming the image. And the other last thing is he's really clear, as we'll see in chapter six, that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Okay? Um, and he's clear about that. So it, it may be, you, you, it's, it's really easy to think that those who are against you, right, or those who don't think like you, or those who don't uh, see the world like you, that they, um, they are your enemies. And, and Paul wants to be clear that this, that this is the arena, as hard as it is to understand, that this is the arena in which uh, the forces of darkness are, are playing out, but our enemies are not your fellow creatures made in the image of God. It's not, it's not 
and it's not a, a battle against them. And so those are things that temper a little bit, I hope, the kind of anxiousness, understandable anxiousness, among some people uh, about the, the imagery. But let's read here what he has to say uh, and uh, unpack verses uh, 10 to the end in the time we have. Your translation may something like say, say finally. Um, and that's a fine translation. Uh, the problem is it doesn't quite get at what Paul's trying to say. Because when you say finally, what all of us think is, oh, we're finally to the end. He's about done. That's right. It's that word you're always looking for when in a sermon or a lecture. It's like, and in closing, finally, right? That's not what really, this is not a rhetorical, Paul's not sort of warning his listeners, I'm just about done, be patient, right? The word really means like, from now on, right? From now on, that sense of finally, okay? From now on. From now on, be empowered, okay? Be empowered in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Okay. Like three power words there in the first verse. And your translation might say, be strong. That not might, and it is an imperative, but it's in a kind of passive sense. Right? It's like be empowered. Right? Allow yourself to be empowered in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Remember, earlier he talked about putting on the new humanity. Right? Putting on the new humanity like a garment. And here he's talking about, it's the same word, putting on the armor of God so that we may be able to stand Hear that word. That word stand is going to come up multiple, multiple times. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the second time in Ephesians when Paul's talking about this bigger picture, this wider landscape, um, that, the, that those that are receiving this letter are part of something uh, bigger than what it looks like. Right? Bigger than what it looks like. And like you, I don't pretend to understand all the ways in which, uh, how to map out the powers of, of darkness. And Paul doesn't either. I mean, he uses several words here he doesn't use anywhere else. Um, but he has a sense, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, that there's more going on in the world than what we can see. And it gets played out in everyday life, in, in uh, the structures uh, of, of human life that are more than the sum total of human beings in their own wills. And so Paul's not afraid to talk about that, but that's, that's the battle. It's not against flesh and blood but it's against these larger powers of darkness. <clears throat> Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand, or stand, on the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. First thing he says, the belt of truth around your waist. And you may know that the, the belt there was uh, intended to sort of uh, keep your, your undergarments in place so you could actually move, right? So you didn't trip. And so, but sort of the, one of the first things that you put on, and it's not, I don't think, surprising uh, that Paul thinks that the, the truth um, is what we first gird ourselves with. Uh, the truth 
of the gospel, the truth of what God has done, the truth of everything that he said in the first three chapters. This is the true reality. It's in light of that. It's this up here. It's, it's this. Okay? You have to keep this in mind. What God has done. Okay? So yes, you're girding yourself up, but you're girding yourself up with what God has done. Right? So the truth around your waist. And put on the breastplate of righteousness or justice. Right? Both translations are right. Many of you know the word that we translate righteousness is also the word that we translate justice. And, and both fit here. Right? Both fit here. Um, God is a God of justice. Uh, God is also a God of righteousness. Um, and it protects, I mean the breastplate of course, protects your, your vital organs, your heart, right? And so it's, it's a central piece of the armor. Um, you know, we, it's not hard to imagine, you know, the, that Paul, we believe Paul wrote this from prison, right? He was probably under house arrest at least, uh, may have been in Rome when he wrote it. Um, so it's, it's probably likely that he, he had pretty frequent occasion to see Roman soldiers. Right, and sort of knew what their garb was. Right, and so it's almost like, you know, you can almost just see him sitting there imagining, you know, what it is that they, they protected themselves with. As shoes, gotta have shoes, right? Gotta have the right shoes. Although this is not a fashion statement. As shoes for your feet, Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Okay? Got all this stand language. Right? It's hard to stand firm without a good pair of shoes. <laughs> right? It's hard to stand firm with a good pair of shoes without a good pair of shoes. But notice how you're standing. Put on your feet whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace, which he's talked about, right? The gospel of peace, the gospel of shalom, the gospel of wholeness, the, the gospel, the good news that God is gathering up all things in Christ. God is making, has made one new humanity. Right? The, in Jesus Christ, this is the gospel of peace. A little irony there, of course, too, right? I mean, you're putting all this armor Right? So that you can be ready, right, to proclaim the gospel of peace. <coughs> so another hint that this is not sort of, you know, militaristic imagery in the way we normally think about it. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield of faith. Some of you have seen this enacted uh, in movies and read about it. You know, the, the, the Romans had pretty large shields. It was to, uh, and they often when they uh, were attacked, there'd be flaming arrows and they would, they would get together and your shield was large enough to cover all of you and about a third of the person next to you. Okay, and so they could cover the, all of them and, and most of their shields were covered with leather, which they would uh, douse with water, right? The leather would hold the water in it. And so flaming arrows were not a problem, right? So that's the imagery he's got. And he just knows there's going to be, you know, the, the forces of our darkness are not going peacefully. They're just not. They're panicked. And so don't think that you won't be attacked. But you have this shield of faith or, or and faithfulness. It's one thing we've talked about, but not nearly enough. The word that we translate faith in Greek is the same word Greek uses for faithfulness. You have to decide in the context. 
right? Which it means. And sometimes it means both. And think, I think here again, it's both, right? It's our faith, our trust. Remember, faith is this trust, this confidence that God will bring to completion what God has begun, right? Even or maybe especially during those times when you feel that you're assaulted. And be clear here, Paul, it's easy for us to think of this armor as, as individual, but all the verbs here and nouns are, are plural. Paul's talking, Paul's talking y'all, right? Y'all put this on together, right? And the shield was a good one. I mean, you don't go out to battle with the shield by yourself. It's made to, to, to do together as a phalanx of soldiers. Right. This is this is words to the church, right? This is not heroic battle, like the you know the the individual, you know the one. It's, it's not it's not that, uh, which is hard to remember when you live in a society that you know is sort of infatuated with the heroic individual. But Paul's saying you all put on the the armor of God together. This is a this is a battle. You're standing together in the midst of this battle. And it's your, your unquenchable faith and trust in God. That God who has inaugurated this kingdom in Jesus will bring it to consummation. And you have a part to play in that. You have a part to play by standing firm and being prepared to announce the gospel of peace. Take or receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Right. So the helmet of salvation, <coughs> God's good gift of bringing all things to completion, to bring all things back to restoration, right. uh, reconciling all things in and through Jesus. And notice the sword of the Spirit. That's an unusual sword. Um, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And here, I think, um, Word of God has lots of different meanings, of course. For us, the quickest one to think of is just Scripture. And that's not wrong, although Paul's certainly not thinking of Scripture the way we are, because most of it, or at least a lot of it, hasn't been written yet in the New Testament. Um, but he's thinking of the power of God's word from the beginning, right? The power of God's word. He starts off by talking about be empowered by the strength and might of God. I mean, the word of God brought creation into existence, right? God speaks creation into being. And as Luther says, that fabulous line, right? For lo, he's talking about the forces of darkness. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Right. Um, so it's it's the notion that, that God's word is is powerful. God, the, the spoken word, the written word. Jesus Christ is Himself the Word, the Word embodied, and so. Yes, put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, right? The Spirit's sword, which is the Word of God. Your translation may have a paragraph break here, which is unfortunate because actually it's not even a sentence break. Um, this is still, when he starts talking about prayer, this is still part of the sentence before. <laughs> So it's unfortunate that it makes it sound like Paul's going on to talk about prayer or something different. Uh, it's actually, he's saying, you know, praying in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. So Paul seems to be thinking this prayer that he's talking about isn't just another, he doesn't associate it with any particular uh, piece of armor, but I think he's thinking of it as the covering of all of this is done in prayer. Okay, That's why it's a participle. You know, praying, 
in the Spirit at all times. All that stuff is done praying in the Spirit at all times, in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. We should be in prayer for everyone else who's part of this seeking by God's grace and power to stand. Pray also for me, Paul says, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. There it is again. Right? The mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. Right? Again, I hope you catch the irony there of that he's an ambassador in chains. Right? It's like a ship in dry dock. Right? An ambassador is a messenger who goes. He's not going anywhere. He's chained up. Right? He's chained up. But he's asking that he be bold, even there, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Then he has a short paragraph where he, he says that he's sending this letter uh, with the dear brother, uh, Tychicus, and he wants them to know that he's doing all right. And then he closes with this passage that we've mentioned a little bit before that sort of sums up. We said that the first three chapters were ultimately about the grace of what God had done in Jesus. And then the next three chapters, well, chapter two was about the peace that God had made in Jesus, that Christ is our peace, right? Because in him, God has broken down the dividing wall. And so he comes back and closes with this grace and peace. Peace, verse 23, be to the whole community and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, Paul is focusing in Ephesians on what God has done in Christ. Um, the astonishing thing that God has done in Christ, he tells that to the Ephesians and the other communities in that region, the Lycus Valley, so that they may understand what their part is in this drama that is unfolding. Yes, the ultimate decisive battle has been won in cross and resurrection. The tide has turned, um, but we still live in that time between the inauguration of this kingdom that Jesus says is here and its final consummation, its final coming in glory and finality. We have a role to play in that. And, um, and Paul doesn't sort of pretty it up and say, and it's going to be easy. Um, so just sit back and wait till Jesus returns. No. Um, yes, God has given us. I mean, Paul seems to be clear in this armor, but God has given us everything we need to stand. Not like we're, we're in a situation of lack or scarcity. God has given us what we need, um, but we have to be willing to be empowered. We have to be willing to stand, um, and we have to do it together. Um, Paul doesn't think there are any uh, Lone Ranger Christians. I can make that analogy here because you know who the Lone Ranger was. My other students have never heard of the Lone Ranger. They don't know what I'm talking about. But you do. You do. And so, I, I hope um, God has a special role for the church to play. And there are lots of days when it's really, really hard to see how God is using the church. 
if, if there are days you get discouraged or despondent because it feels like the church is every bit as broken as every other institution that you can think of. Um, I, I find myself there some days. Right? It's hard not to despair. Um, and yet, and yet, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to read Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and think that God's hands are somehow tied until God can find a perfect, pure instrument to use. Sh show me one place other than Jesus where this is true. Right? Uh, God seems to glory in using clay pots, broken clay pots, which is what we are. That's not an excuse to uh, continue to make it, to crack us up more, <laughs> right? Um, but it should keep us from despairing that God, um, as Luther says, this kingdom is eternal. Right? This kingdom is eternal, and, we're, and God has brought us into existence to bear witness to that eternal kingdom. And God can do that even in our brokenness. Um, again, it's not an excuse for our brokenness, but it does, we don't, uh, despair is not an option. Right? Despair is not an option for us uh, because our trust is in God, not in Muncie, not in United Methodism, not in the church anywhere, any place in the world. That's not where our hope ultimately resides. It's in what God has done in Jesus Christ and what God has promised to bring to completion. And we need each other to remind ourselves of that, particularly on the days when it's not clear what's going on. Right? It's not clear what's going on. But Paul reminds us there's always more going on than what our fleshly eyes can see. Um, and we have to believe that. We have to trust that that is true. So I want to offer a prayer, and then I want to close with that benediction from chapter 3 um, that will be, we'll let Paul have the final word. This seems only appropriate. We've been studying Ephesians. Um, so let's pray together. God of grace and peace, the God whose grace met us in Jesus Christ most assuredly, the God who sent us Jesus Christ who is our peace. We pray that these words from so long ago these astonishing words, these encouraging words, that they might renew our own hearts and minds, that they might give us hope and courage, that they might strengthen our faith that what you have done and what you have promised to do, that you will in fact bring to completion Pray that you might give us a clear sense day by day how we as your people gathered here in this place and gathered in other places like it might be a witness to who you are and what you are doing in the world. God, we confess that many days we do get discouraged. We do get disappointed by our own frailty, our own weaknesses, our own shortcomings. And yet we know that you can use us even in our frailty and brokenness if we will trust you to do so. And so we pray that you will. Gracious God, we thank you for this little book in your word and pray that it might continue to bear good fruit in our lives. And now glory to God.
whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to God from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus, our Lord, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. <laughs>